Hi, and welcome to Bread. We are an open-minded, spirit-filled, non-denominational church, and we are in a new series called If Jesus is Supreme. In a world of half-truths, split opinions, and divergent beliefs, Paul's letter to the Colossians makes a surprisingly concrete claim. Jesus is supreme. He is the ruler of the universe, the authority in all of life. And when we fully lay hold of this fact, every area of our life is affected. So this is a series about the process of maturing. It's for everyone who knows there is more. So we are starting a brand new series today on uh, the book of Colossians. And I'm very excited about this, actually, because this series is designed really to help us uh, with what I think um, God has been speaking to us as a a leadership team about where we are as a church and what he wants us to do. we're always going to be a church that is open uh, and welcoming to those um, on the outside. I think the sign of a healthy church is a large fringe, a large number of people who aren't necessarily sure whether they fully are into it, fully belong, but they can't help themselves coming along and observing, because that actually is the picture of church uh, in the New Testament, in Paul's uh, description of the church. There are always those who don't believe on the outside, and we want to give people the opportunity to work through all of their stuff. So it's always going to be open, it's always going to be welcome, it's going to be intellectually inquisitive, it is going to help people deconstruct the things that aren't helpful, it's going to give people a safe place to work through the issues going on in the world around them and to work out what they believe about things like the Holy Spirit, about who Jesus is, uh, questions about sexuality, questions about science and politics and all those things. And it's always going to be that, this church. It's what we've come to do, is to bring good news to people in desperate need of it. But it's not just going to be that. Because we don't want to stay there. For those of who have of you who've been here for for a while, Um, but actually for all of us, there is so much more. There is so much more than just that. Of course, that is vital, but there is more. And actually, it's maturity in our faith that God calls all of us to. And this is what I think uh, God has been speaking to us about in the last few months. It's what we want to pursue, to not stay where we are, to not be happy where we are, but to move on. Now, the journey for each of us is going to be very different, but the destination is always the same. And the book of Colossians really is all about Christian maturity. And so I want to encourage all of you, whether it's your first time here, whether you've been coming to Bread for a long time, um, would you be open to the challenge? It might get a bit messy. It might make you feel a little bit uncomfortable, but be open to the challenge of going for more. So the series is going to run for a number of weeks. It's going to tie in with um, super small groups, which will be starting in mid to late October. I really encourage you to be part of one of those. It's great to meet people. It's great to go deeper in your faith. And it's going to be part of the theme of our weekend away in October. Let me explain, just as we start, a little brief uh, overview of the argument of the letter. So there is an overriding theological theme throughout Colossians. And it is this the supremacy of Christ. 
There is none like him. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is the creator of the whole universe. He is the ruler of the whole universe. He is it. There are no other gods apart from him. Jesus Christ, the image of the invisible God. God made known. And he rules over everything. And it's so, therefore, when we come to terms with Jesus' authority to dictate how we live and how we grow into mature Christians, we will then not be buffeted back and forth by circumstances, by relationships, by what's going on in the world around us. We will be instead on solid ground. So Paul says, if Jesus is supreme, then you will mature. If he is supreme in your life, you will mature. And don't you want that? You need it. (laughs) So we've called the series, If Jesus is Supreme, Then. If Jesus is Supreme, then we will die to sin, the things that hold us back, the things that stop us being the beautiful creatures that we were made to be. If Jesus is Supreme, then we will live for Christ. We will become more and more like him in our own unique individual way. If Jesus is Supreme, then, in short, we will mature. So my job this week is to set the scene for us. And I'm going to do the whole of chapter one. I was going to do the whole of chapter one in two talks, this talk and next talk, but Robin has decided that he's going to grace us with his presence next week, so I have to do it all in one. So it's going to be a lot. But in fact, let me start with a verse that ends this sort of introductory chapter, chapter one. It's at the beginning of chapter two. Paul says this, verse six of chapter two, so then... Therefore, just as you received Christ as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. So then, therefore, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. I did my undergraduate degree uh, in Cambridge. Uh, I'm just boasting. Uh, I didn't like it in particular. um, And it was small and boring and kind of stayed, and I couldn't wait to get out. I just, I didn't like it. And I sort of vowed I'd never go there again. Uh, And London, by contrast, was beautiful and amazing and exciting and fun and spent a lot of time there. But then I felt like God called me to become an ordained minister. And so I ended up going back to Cambridge, something I wish I'd never done. But I wanted to give it... um, a little bit more, uh, to give it one more try. I thought, it's going to be okay. And I was new, relatively new in my faith. I was excited. I was with this cohort of theological students, and we were going back to Cambridge, and it was going to be great. And so we walked into our first lecture, and I thought, um, I can't wait. We're excited about what God can do in the church. We want to become church leaders. We want to become church planters. I wonder what this first lecture might be to set us up for this amazing new adventure we're going on? Will it be about God's healing power? Will it be about uh, thousands of people coming to know Jesus? Will it be about all the extraordinary things of justice that God can do? And we sat down in this ancient old lecture hall in Cambridge, and the professor stood up and he said, this is your first lecture. It is this, entitled, Managing Church Decline. (laughs) Subtitle, How to Help a Church Go from Lots of People to not many people. (laughs) Yes. And then I thought, this is rubbish, isn't it? And for the rest of my time there, it was rubbish. But not entirely rubbish. I did learn a few things. And this little introduction thing is to tell you one of the helpful things that I learned. Are you ready for it? It's not rocket science. 
when reading Paul's letter, always ask yourself, what is the therefore there for? <laughs> Do you want it again? When reading Paul's letters, always ask yourself, what is the therefore therefore? Chapter 2, verse 6. So then, or therefore, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him. The therefore is there to link everything Paul has just said in chapter 1 to everything he's going to go on to say for the rest of the letter. Chapter 1 is like the theological introduction to the practical discipleship implementation of everything that goes on before. And so this verse is actually much more than just some kind of obvious piece of advice. Instead, it shows that actually we have to embrace the fullness of this theological underpinning if we're going to have any hope of then living the mature lives that he's uh, asking us to. We don't, though, often behave like this. We live in the age of quick fix, don't we? We want the answers. Ten rules to a more successful life. Five rules to how to be a better person. We want it now. Tell us what to do and we'll do it. But Paul says, whoa, whoa, whoa. just wait a second. Wait a second. Let us begin at the beginning. So, what then is going on in this first chapter? We have not got the time to read the whole passage, so let me just set out it in summary. It's in three parts. Part one, he wants us to know, he wants the Colossians to know that he thanks God that they have received Christ. That's verse three to eight. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you because we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love you have for all God's people, says Paul. That's section one. Section two, verses nine to 23, he wants the Colossians to know that he prays that they may receive more of Christ. Verse 9 and 10, we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord. That's section 2. And section 3, verse 24 to 2, verse 5, he wants them to know that he is also working so that they and, in fact, the whole world might know more of this Christ. Verse 25, I have become its servant, its servant of the gospel, by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. So, in short, Paul is thanking and praying and working for the Colossians because they have experienced and understood Christ, and therefore he knows that they will go on to experience and understand more of Christ. And because they have experienced and understood Christ, and because they will go on to experience and understand Christ even the more, they will therefore, says Paul, necessarily go on to Christian maturity because Jesus is not only the means by which we enter the kingdom of God, he it is also who is the means by which we grow in the kingdom of God. So, let me just set this clear. Despite what you may have heard, it is not the case that Jesus saves you and then it's up to you. Do it. Rather, Jesus saves you and then it's up to him. He is like a great investor. He backs you. He bets on you. And then he spends his whole time ensuring that you have the best opportunity to succeed by filling you with himself. Um, every school year, our school runs a sort of fundraising drive 
uh, which is, um, has all the potential to be a living nightmare hell, uh, where they put on this big sort of Saturday afternoon thing in the baking hot sun with no shade and children just eating sugar from nine till five. They are redlining, or should I say redvining, on sugar. And then the, ch and the parents are getting more and more difficult. Uh, but actually, the more I've observed these things, the more beautiful they are. The kids love it. The parents make friends. They enjoy it. And they see this school come to life because they are invested in it doing well. They want it to do well. And they see it thrive. It's the same with any decent venture capitalist. They will tell you that they wouldn't just pour some money into something and then just hope it goes all right. They will put money in it, they will research it, they will offer advice, they will put more money in it if they need it. They will do everything they can to make it live. And Jesus is the archetypal venture capitalist. You are his venture. And he's not left you to do it by yourself. He wants to invade you with his presence and his power so that you might live. To be a Christian is to become part of the family of Christ, but it is also to have Christ become part of us. It's why Paul can talk about the idea that we are both in Christ and Christ is also in us. So, here is the challenge. If you let him, he will bear fruit in you, the fruit that we most desperately desire. So, how do we get more Jesus? We will go on to more of this during the um, series. But today, one very simple point, really. You must become an expert in understanding and knowledge of God's grace. Verse 6. In the same way the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it, and truly understood God's grace. The fact that Paul says truly understood suggests it's possible to not truly understand God's grace, to limit it, to water it down, to forget it, to substitute it for something lesser. Do not do this. My job this morning is going to present the truth of grace without compromising it in any way at all. It will make you feel uncomfortable. Because what we believe, Christian grace, is uncomfortable. When it is not uncomfortable, it stops being grace. Something has gone wrong. So let it flood you with all its uncomfortableness. Let me start here. The book of Hosea. Hosea was the first of the minor prophets, not quite as good as the major ones, but he's still first of the minor prophets. And in chapter 1, verse 2, the Lord begins to speak through Hosea. And the Lord says to him, Go, Hosea, marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. The Old Testament is so weird. So, he married Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Gomer then goes on to commit adultery. 
and ends up leaving Hosea and working as a prostitute. But God's not done there. He says to Hosea in chapter 3, go show your love to your wife again, the one who has committed adultery with you and has now become a prostitute. Though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress, love her. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. Gomer doesn't get fairness. She doesn't get justice. But she does get free and unlimited grace. And God asks Hosea to do this because he wants to illustrate his relationship to the nation of Israel, the nation that has turned their back on him. They've forgotten what he has done for them. And when God had chosen them to be his, the God of the whole world, the the only true God, the infinitely powerful one, the creator of everything we see around us, when he says to them, be mine, they have said no. We mock you and we make you look stupid. We prostitute ourselves. And God says, but I still love you. He has been rejected, but he does not reject. And it is a foreshadowing of Jesus mocked in front of everyone, spat on, a crown of thorns placed on his head, hanging on a cross, as Jesus then cries out, Father, forgive them, as Hannah said earlier. They don't know what they're doing. But it gets worse, this grace. Because Paul the Apostle says this, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. It's not like there are any boundaries or limits. You cannot get outside the scope of grace. There is no math or logic to it at all. Jesus talks about leaving 99 sheep to go and find the one. It is an idiotic thing to do. You leave the 99 sheep, they are left to uh, wild animals, to uh, thieves, to Uh, other um, uh, places that they could wander off. It makes no sense. Even if you only lose two, you have not done the right thing because you've gained one and lost two. But you could lose 30 or you could lose 99. He leaves all the 99 to go after the one. It makes no sense. A woman named Mary anoints Jesus with a pint of perfume, a year's wages. She could have done half a pint. She could have done a quarter of a pint. She could have just done a thimbleful. It would have all worked, but she doesn't. She does the whole thing. What a waste. Totally idiotic. Makes no sense. A woman puts two cents, two little coins, in the collection. But it's worth more than thousands. The thousands of other dollars that other people put in. Do you know what you can buy with two cents? Nothing at all. It makes no sense. And yet Jesus says this is infinitely valuable. Jesus tells a story, my favorite parable in the whole Bible, tells a story of some farmhands. Some of them turn up at 6 o'clock in the morning, and they work all day in the baking sun. They work for their money. Then some just turn up at lunchtime, still hot in the afternoon. They work all afternoon. And then some turn up and don't do anything. They turn up when it's clocking off time. And they all, all of them, every single one gets paid exactly the same amount. It makes no sense. It's idiotic. It's the grace of God. It cannot be calculated. It doesn't add up. Its equation makes no sense. 
Everything we hear from our world, though, is the opposite. It is ungrace. We hear it from an early age, and it does irreparable damage sometimes. You cannot underestimate its impact. The early bird gets the worm. No pain, no gain. There's no such thing as a free lunch. You get what you pay for. Jesus says, all the birds get as many worms as they like, all the time, whenever they want them. He says, no pain, all gain. He says, there is such a thing as a free lunch, and a dinner, and a breakfast, and even a brunch, and a Levenses, if you're British. He says, you get what you didn't pay for. Uh, Dr. Bob Smith and Bill Wilson were the founders of Alcoholics Anonymous. When they were devising their 12-step program, they went to see a man called Bill, a different Bill. He was a prominent attorney who was an alcoholic uh, and had been chucked out of eight different detox plans. When they saw him, he was strapped to a hospital bed as, an, as a punishment for attacking two nurses. When the two AA founders told him about their battles against addiction and the importance of a belief in a higher power, Bill, lying in this bed, shook his head at the mention of any sort of godlike figure. He said, no, 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 it's too late for me. I still believe in God, all right. But I know mighty well he doesn't believe in me. All of us do this from time to time. We make ourselves impervious to grace. Surely not me. Everyone else but not me. And yet grace says, I know. I know you're not. But there are no limits to me. No boundaries. And where sin increases, I increase all the more. It's not fair. A friend of mine in London I met, um, I'm going to call him Nick, but that's not his name. Uh, he had abusive parents, so he's put up for adoption. He was adopted, and then his adoptive parents abused him as well. He quickly, in his teens, became a drug addict, and he had a series of short-term, meaningless relationships. He got himself together. He got a good job. He went into NA. He went into the AA. He met a girl. She's a lap dancer and a prostitute. He sleeps with her, he gets her pregnant. What neither he nor she knew at the time was that she was his biological daughter. A daughter he never knew he even had. She then brings charges against him. He was convicted, he's now in prison. Totally broken man. I met him because he came to church. And while he was waiting for his trial, he thought, I'll give it one last resort. Maybe church can help. And he heard about Jesus. And I spoke to him when he was bawling on the floor, tears streaming down his face, not of regret or sadness, but of joy, of relief, tears of forgiveness saying, I know I'm not good enough, but I've met Jesus who loves me. And if God could really love me, if God actually believes in me, if Jesus cares for me, perhaps there's hope for me. All the barriers came down. 
longing for more of the love of Jesus. And if you're thinking, yeah, but, there are no buts. The prodigal son returns to his father after wishing him dead, squandering everything on wild living, and finally plucks up the courage to come back to his father, who, while his, father is, is, while his son is still far, far off, sees him because he has been waiting for him every day, waiting for him. And as soon as he sees him, he runs, something a Jewish man of nobility would never do. He runs, and he embraces his son. He asks no questions and says, my son who is dead is alive again. Let's have a party. And the thing is, the son could, after having a good night's sleep, filled his belly, enjoyed a shower, been rehabilitated, could go, thing is, I did quite like that lifestyle, and could go back off and do it all again. And the father would still be there waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. And as soon as he see him, he would do exactly the same thing, run towards him, embrace him. My son who is dead is alive again. Let's have a party. And he could do it again and again and again and again and again and again because this is grace. There are no ifs. There are no buts. Grace is idiotic. It's baffling because it goes against the intuition that we all have in the face of injustice, some price has to be paid. A murderer simply cannot go free. A child abuser can't just shrug and say, oh, I'm sorry. And that's true. It has to be acknowledged and accounted for, and it has been once and for all. But not by the perpetrators. Not by you and me, but by him. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. In the movie, uh, The Last Emperor, the young child anointed as the final emperor of China lives this sort of magical life of luxury with thousands of servants, all just at his command and bidding. And his brother asks him, what happens when you do something wrong? And he replies to him, when I do something wrong, someone else gets punished. And just to prove the point, he breaks a jar and straight away one of his servants is beaten. Jesus, the king of kings, reverses that pattern. When the servants erred, the king took all the consequences. Grace is free, but it costs Jesus everything. It makes no sense. But it's everything that we have. Karl Barth um, was probably one of the greatest theologians of the 20th, 20th century. And towards the end of his life, he was teaching at the University of Chicago. And this is an incredible bro uh, brain. He wrote um, uh, this book that's just, it's in 12 volumes. It's enormous in church dogmatics. And he was there at the end of his life teaching at the University of Chicago. And there was a Q&A. And one of the questions was, what is the greatest theological insight over your years of life that you have done that you could share with us now? And everyone was expecting something extraordinary. What's he going to say? Karl Barth stood there, sitting in thousands of students in a lecture hall, and said, the greatest theological thing that I could share with you is this. Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Sociologists have this theory known as the looking glass self. The theory that states that um, you are and you will become 
what the people most important to you reflect you to be. So it's like you will be what the most important person in your life thinks you are. Most people have very important people in their lives who love them, usually their parents. But even the best parental love is always conditional. My parents love me very much, but they love me conditionally. They are human. Sometimes they love me more, sometimes they love me less. Hannah, my wife, she loves me. I know. <laughs> it's a wonder. But always conditionally. Sometimes she loves me more, sometimes she loves me less. She's human. Sadly, for some people, the most important person in their life has not loved them or has loved them very unconditionally, very conditionally. You've told them that you need to try harder, you need to be better. Why aren't you doing it right? They've told them that they're not good enough, they're worthless, they're disappointed in them. Or the most important person in your life is just not there at all, was just absent, so that when you look to see who the most important person in your life should tell you to be. You don't see anything and you don't know who you are. Jesus loves you. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. You're his favorite and no one else really matters. Do not worry about anyone else. The key to becoming an expert, and you need to become an expert in understanding and knowledge of the grace of God, is to know that all these stories are really about you you personally. All the other characters are inconsequential. The one sheep who'd gone astray, that's you. The widow with the two-cent offering, that's you. The Mary anointing Jesus' feet, that's you. The worker who turned up late and didn't do any work, that's you. You're my friend who's in prison. You're my friend who cheated on his wife, left her, and doesn't want anything to do with his kids. You're also the wife who was cheated on. The people who were abused. You're the one whom Jesus loves. No amount of good deeds, renunciations, Bible studies, worship songs, prayers, or anything else will change how much he loves you. You cannot make him love you anymore. And no amount of racism, no amount of pride, no amount of pornography or adultery or murder will change how much he loves you. Nothing you can do can make him love you any less. You cannot moderate grace. Do not moderate grace. The Bible doesn't allow it. Jesus doesn't allow it. And yet we live in a moderated, ungraceful world. Do you know that Ford Motor Company used to have a scale from 1 to 27 of grading its employees. Scale one is secretaries, scale 27 is the chairman of the board. You must reach at least grade nine to get an outside parking space. Grade 13 brings you such perks as a window plant and intercom systems. Grade 16 offers with it a office with a bathroom. Every institution runs on achieve this, get here, you will be rewarded. Everything depends on what you do. Fail, and you are a failure. Succeed, and you are a success. Fortune magazine annually lists the 500 richest people on Earth. No one knows the names of the 500 poorest people on Earth. 
Jesus does. He works entirely the other way around. Nothing depends on your performance, good or bad. Everything depends on his, which is perfect. And because it is, God's acceptance is open to you all. He loves you because he loves you because he loves you because he loves you. Let me end with this. Richard Neighbour, who was a kind of um, a theologian of the last century, said this, the great Christian revolutions come not by the discovery of something that was not known before. They happen when someone takes radically something that was known before. Take radically the grace of Jesus in all its uncompromised, uncomfortable unfairness. It makes no sense. Don't try and make it make sense. Just receive it. Because when we receive it, and this is key for Paul for the whole letter, when we receive more of Jesus' grace, we cannot help but giving it to other people. It is what the world needs. Otherwise, Jesus would have done something completely different. He would have just taught us how ten rules to live. That's the Old Testament. Uh, <laughs> rather, he comes with grace. The world can do almost anything as well as or better than the church, one preacher said. You, need to, you don't need to be a Christian to build houses, feed the hungry, or heal the sick. The only thing that the world cannot do, it cannot offer grace. Only Jesus can. Verse 9, we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord, please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power. So the Christianity, the, sorry, the, um, the process of Christian maturity is like a spiral, going higher and higher and higher. More knowledge leads to more fruit. More fruit leads to more knowledge. More understanding leads to more good works. More good works lead to more understanding of who Jesus is. You will know that you have become an expert in grace when it's easy to forgive. You will know you have become an expert in grace when you look on other people who have hurt other people who've hurt you, who, whose whole life is causing destruction. And you will look on them and go, it's a child of God. Someone I love. When you go, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. There was an extremely... Um, influential English evangelical scholar. He died a few years ago. He was regarded as sort of the bastion of conservative theological thought. Almost certainly sort of every um, conservative preacher, both in the UK and here and across the world, would have read his books. What's striking, though, is to see the progression of his thought, particularly towards the end of it, becoming actually a lot less staunchly conservative, especially with regards to views on hell and women's ordination and the work of the Spirit. And right at the end of his life, he was asked what he thought of the state of the evangelical church. The interviewer was expecting him to say something along the lines of, well, against all the secular attacks from the world, we have stood firm to the right truth. And he said, we've forgotten the poor. 
We were so fixated with sound theology. We forgot to look after the poor. We should have done more for the poor. When you are based in grace, grace flows from you. It cannot stop. Become an expert in grace for yourself. Receive it for yourself. It is what you need. No one, I don't think, in this room has fallen further than my friend Nick, who is in prison. And yet, he receives grace because he knows it makes sense that Jesus is that loving, that kind. So if you are less far down than Nick, surely for you too, you can receive it. And in receiving it, give it to a world in desperate need. They don't need more truth. Amen. What I think we should do now is worship Jesus for a bit. And as we worship Jesus, what I want to encourage you to do as we end is to allow him to parent you. I, I mean that um, carefully. I'm, I'm using that word carefully to parent you because um, if the message we've received is you are what you've achieved or what you've achieved isn't enough, we need that message to be nailed to the cross and burnt up in the fire of God's mercy and grace once and for all. And instead, let him, your parent, your good parent, say, I love you because I love you. Just receive my love over and over again. Would that be okay? Good. Let's stand and we'll sing. Um, we'll, we'll sing for a bit. If you have to go, you have to go. But we'll sing for a bit. And then, um, as always, we offer an opportunity for anyone who wants to to receive prayer. And we'll do that in a bit. But let's... Just commit to worshipping Jesus for a bit.